Hey, it's that time again. It's me, Riley, right here by myself, recording a Kami Book Club episode for all you wonderful Patreon listeners out there. Um, And then also all you non-Patreon listeners sometime in the future, or from your perspective, the present. Yeah, that's more or less how time works. Uh, That's very fun. Hello, uh, it's me, Riley. Like I said before, today I'm decide well a i'm not going to be drinking while i record this which is unusual uh because usually i am however i had a trademark big night out last night and i've decided not to do that instead i'm going to get over my hangover by uh talking about a book that i liked uh the book today is called for a left populism it is published by surprise verso hey if other publishers want to send me free books i'm more than happy to take a look at them um and it's by Chantal Mouffe, who is a French political theorist who primarily works in uh, England. And she's at the University of Westminster. Um, she is she's a big figure on the left. Uh, I'm a big fan of her work. Um, she's written uh, a lot of books. This is sort of just her most recent Um uh, she's written on the political uh, hegemony and socialist, socialist strategy, sort of agonisms. They're all they're all very good. I, I rec- really recommend you read them um, if you like sort of theory, because that's what she's talking about. She's talking about a lot of theory stuff, and she writes like a philosopher. Like it feels quite a bit like it, it'll it feel it, honestly it'll feel like doing university reading, but at the same time, like she's very very clear. And if you want to put the effort in to kind of, you know, really understanding what she's saying that is very worthwhile reading. Now, For a Left Populism came out in 2018 uh, this year, and it is essentially a sort of a prescription for how we can understand um, populist politics as sort of a left movement, I guess. Um, and I wanted to do this book because many of my previous book clubs have always been about sort of accurately describing the problem, engaging with works rather, that I think accurately describe the problem of sort of in what ways are our lives made more stupid and pointless by the dominance of capital and in what ways the screws of control tightened. And I've been told they get kind of depressing. And I'm not going to lie, I always bum myself out too whenever I do them uh, because they're basically just a monthly review of all the sort of implacable forces arrayed against us. Um, and what Moof does is she talks, yeah, she talks about how this came about. In fact, I'm going to be focusing on the bits of her book that are less about sort of how we came to our current moment and more about what she thinks we should do about it. Um, so let's just jump in. So first with a quick summary for left populism is a book about, uh, thinking about a way to harness the crumbling of neoliberalism to bring about socialism in our time. Neoliberalism is crumbling because A, it's unsustainable economically. Obviously, we sort of talk about that almost every time. And B, there is still enough democracy left for people to effectively oppose it. The problem is, of course, a lot of that opposition, or at least a lot of the successful opposition to the crumbling of neoliberalism, has basically been fascism, which is a yikes for me. Um, so, 
what are we really talking about here as still in, when I say still enough democracy left for people to effectively oppose it? Uh, Move talks a lot about post-politics, where basically the period from 1990 or 1980 or 1971, if we want to talk about uh, currency liberalization, to 2016 was post-political, where there was a consensus in most of the developed world that the market was to be the dominant force in society and all politics would be fundamentally reactive to the market. Um, now, this is a very heavily theoretical book, like I said. So I'm going to really start with the theory stuff and go through some of my problematic fave philosophers like Schmidt and Heidegger to talk about what Carl Schmidt, uh, rather, and Heidegger. And we'll talk about how it applies to modern politics um, and, and how the post-political through, through this um, uh, lens is sort of such a stupid sort of way to exist. Now, Mouffe describes liberal democracy as a balance between liberal forces, so privatized services to make them more efficient, whether or not that works, and democratic forces, nationalized services at the expense of capital to make them work for everyone, you know, if not sort of more efficiently, even though they are more efficient when they're done that way, blah, 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 ideology. The transformation of labor uh, from Benism to Blairism was essentially the triumph of the liberal part of liberal democracy over the democratic part of liberal, of liberal democracy. So, Liberal democracy exists in this tension where we have popular control of politics and we have like unpopular control of nearly every other part of everyone's life. Um, and so we know, and we've talked about this before, from the 70s to now has been the sort of retrenchment of um, of, of, of democracy of, of democracy in favor of a liberal economics. Um, so think about how politicians often voice opposition to genuinely popular socialist policies for fear of inducing something like capital flight, which, if you don't know, is when all the investors uh, in a given country just sort of pick up and leave because they don't want to pay taxes. So I remember there's there's this concept actually uh, called the Laffer curve, and uh, I'm sure any economists sort of listening to this are rolling their eyes because they know what this is, but the Laffer curve – uh, basically suggests that there is actually a certain percent of um, of tax where you get diminishing marginal returns on um, on on ta- on rising tax rates. So basically, if you put a ninety seven percent wealth tax, for example, then you're actually going to get less tax than if you put in a ten percent tax revenue than if you put in a ten percent um, uh, 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 a, a flat tax because the wealthy will find ways to avoid it. Now, the Laffer curve is a, a sort of a complete bunk economics. And, you know, I'm sure one of the economists in the broader trash future world can sort of go into a little bit more of, you know, why that is. But much like the Reinhardt Rogoff paper, which I've discussed before, which is that, you know, positing that, you know, uh, if you have debt as a certain percentage of your GDP, you are going to um, uh, 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 stave off growth. Um, uh, both of these, at least proven, disproven um, as complete nonsense. They just made up the numbers in order to get to that point. Um, but these uh, these concepts were sort of deployed um, to sort of play down uh, democracy in favor of liberalism. Like, well, we'd love to do democracy, but we can't. We, 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 we sort of can't because of these laws of economics that they really just made up. So ideas like this are really powers like this sort of hide behind these ideas to allow the market to set the terms of rule, to sort of define what society is, who it's for, how it works, how we distribute the benefits and burdens of of cooperation. And the demos, the people, um, takes a sort of much more passive role. Um, Now, so this is is 
what, what, what move sees as the fundamental tr- crisis of liberal democracy is, is that it has come out of balance. Um, and a big part of this is the growth of, of liberal politics as sort of forgetting how to do politics. Um, so politics for MOOF um, is based on in and out, a distinction between friend and enemy. And the point of politics is you and your friends um, and are, are working in an adversarial relationship against an, 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 an other, an outsider. And that's where the line is drawn. And the most interesting thing here is that she relies on Carl Schmitt, who is, if you're not familiar with him, was a legal philosopher uh, in Germany in the 1920s and 30s. Yes, folks, a Nazi legal philosopher, a Nazi jurist. And what Schmitt says is that, look, the concept of the political is based on the distinction between friend and enemy, which is sort of what makes which is what made sort of Nazi politics almost work. Um, which is what fat makes fascism work is that is that the fascists draw a line and say, you, the sort of racially pure Germans or the white Americans or whatever, you're being threatened by the, the Jews or you're being threatened by the, the black people or what have you. And, but that's where like right-wing fascist populism draws the line. Left-wing populism draws the line between we, the people, and them, the elites. And left-wing populism um, is supposed to build a solidarity across uh, country lines, across race lines, um, and within a certain class, let's say. Um, And I think I want to think a little bit about um, uh, 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 sort of Carl Schmitt and what what he's saying here. What he's saying here is, is, is saying that politics is sort of exciting, daring, and dangerous. And that kind of reminds me of Walter Benjamin. Now, Walter Benjamin, I've talked about quite a bit, as everyone on this who's listened to these knows I really love the Frankfurt School. And what we remember is that he, one of his best sort of, I think, snippets uh, was that fascism is the introduction of the aesthetic to politics, that feeling of sort of daring danger, that sort of reinvigoration of life into the polity. It's just that fascism is this sort of shot of adrenaline to the heart of a zombie politic. It is protecting the sort of decayed and degenerate relationships um, of dominance that sort of, that that keeps society stupider and more evil, I guess. And when we say the aesthetic to politics, in the one sense, yes, we are talking about the sort of the thrill of the sharply cut uniforms and lines of soldiers marching in formation. We also mean the introduction of a feeling of teleology and destiny to politics. And that, looking at politics as libidinal um, is not in itself bad. It's that we must harness that libido for um, the ends of solidarity. We must harness that libido for the ends of sort of, of, of extending human dignity, that socialism must be exciting. Um, and the other thing I, that I, I think of, and this sort of brings me back to Carl Schmitt, is the other Nazi philosopher, Heidegger. Um, so Martin Heidegger was, uh, again, a sort of German, I guess you could say, ontologist, phenomenologist. And he was thinking about political ontology. What is the political? How do we define it? Um, and what I think is that it's sort of the concept of the political for Heidegger was a way that people would reckon with spiritual emptiness. And there is nothing quite so spiritually emptying as living in in, in late capitalism. When we talk of... Um, I was an article on Eater actually recently that said that sort of like the, the, 
the commodity sort of is sucked of all life, a sandwich that you purchase from Tesco versus one that is made for you from your mother or from your father or you made it for you. Um, the, the commodity that's purchased, the sandwich that's per- purchased from Tesco is necessarily going to be sort of dry and empty. It is, there is no personal thing to it. There's, it, 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 it is a relationship of exploitation where sort of that sandwich is the method from wh- by which Tesco is able to extract excess value that the worker produces and then extract what little wage you have left over. You feel kind of cheated um, when you have that uh, particular sandwich. Um, and I think it's no sort of, it's no wonder that a lot of the modern uh, fascist groups, um, they, they reckon with the sort of, the feeling of sort of disenchantment. They answer the question of, is that all life is with actually, no, you have a destiny. It's just, they construe that destiny along nationalist and racial lines. Um, And as I say, the job of socialism is to understand that that is a natural, that desire for a teleology and a destiny um, is, is um, it's natural for people. It's a natural result of living the way we do. And we have to sort of harness that energy, but we have to harness it for good. Um, and we have to admit that we are in a time where this aesthetic is the feeling of destiny is ripe for political readmission. Because remember, so much of what I've discussed on previous book clubs is about how our autonomy is more and more circumscribed as the ways we constitute who we are, are becoming more defined by consumption rather than labor, self-directed production and so forth. And there's that great emptiness. And Heidegger points that out, and he thought it was going to be filled by racial destiny, national destiny. And the socialists say, no, we see the emptiness too, but we, we will not fill it fraudulently. Like one, of the, one of the phrases, I think just to explain this a bit more, I sort of frequently use on Okami book clubs is um, the idea that our lives are sort of being constructed for us in such a way that they could really be lived by more or less anybody. Um, you know, so this is the, the classic, you go from school to university to, um, a job to sort of moving up in that job to realizing you've been in institutions for your entire life. And you are, you've been sort of, you've always been a sort of passive, um, a passive participant in society that most of the way that you sort of construe yourself individually is through consumption choices. And those choices leave you feeling sort of profoundly empty because it's a kind of, it's a, it is, it's a fake kind of freedom. It is, it is, it is a way where you say, well, I'm, I'm, um, I'm, I'm a nerd. So I buy a lot of Warhammer. So I'm buying Warhammer. So I'm a nerd and I know who I am because of what I buy, not because of necessarily what I do or what I make. Um, and so you sort of always have that nagging feeling in the back of your head that your life really sort of has no point. You're sort of, it's a, it's a paint by numbers at best. And how can you possibly say that something like a paint by numbers is um, really art? And so this is kind of the feeling that I think that we can think about when we think of Heidegger. We can just understand him as, you know, going the wrong way with it. Um, back to, back to Mouffe. Um, so left populism tells the story about how this emptiness that you're lit, that you're living, um, 
is basically created because the elites have excluded you from the democratic process and have taken advantage of you by reducing your economic autonomy. Because ultimately, it is by the, it is by self-directed labor for which from which you benefit, that you own, that you decide how it works, and blah, blah, blah. That's a lot of how you end up feeling as though you are doing something, that your life is your own and couldn't be being lived by anybody. Um, and so... I'm going to move on to another sort of concept that Move talks about. And this is going to help me transition, I think, into talking about why liberal politics is sort of so, I don't know, uninspiring, why the people's vote movement will never get anything done and why it's just sort of annoying. Um, that politics for Move, that division between friend and enemy, and again, the division we want to emphasize is between the people and the economic elites, namely um, you know, the, the Bezoses, for example, the people who are you know, becoming billionaires because they're exploiting you. Um, politics requires radical negativity, um, which is the acceptance that some differences in interest are irreducible to compromise. That is to say, there is no problem solved. There's no problem solving. There's no tweak. There is no regulatory sort of nudge that is going to actually reconcile the interests of labor and capital. These are opposed interests. Now, the other one of the other sort of key differences i think between sort of left populism and say right populism is that left poli- left populism as Mouf describes it looks at this process agonistically as opposed to antagonistically agonism is defined as a kind of um op- a contestation or opposition between parties that are adversarial but are not seeing each other as an enemy. There's a difference between an enemy and an adversary. Um, an enemy, you sort of destroy by any means necessary. An, an adversary, you recognize their right to exist, but you also want to beat them, uh, you genuinely beat them. You don't want to listen to them. You don't want to take their concerns on board. You want to genuinely marginalize their voice, but you don't want to then kill them about it. Um, and so, again, fascism sees this dividing line and this radical negativity as taking place antagonistically. Socialists, I think, or at least democratic socialists, as Mouffe d- uh, discusses, um, sees this taking place agonistically. Uh, but that's why liberals say socialists and fascists are the same, because both both parties sort of harness the psychological power of politics as a grand narrative, as something sort of Manichaean, um, that rather than sort of simple boring managerialism and problem-solving. And I think this is actually where one of the um, one of the first sort of problems of the book comes up, though, which is that well, the fascists are antagonistic, and we are merely agonistic. Uh, where we say if our goal is an egalitarian politics, our goal is the extension of democracy out of the sort of formal political sphere into the economic sphere, and their goal is absolute rule from luxurious space stations over a patchwork of ethnic Bantu stands from which they you know, occasionally take blood, then aren't we still compromising them by allowing them any space or power at all? That is, at what point does Bezos give up, A, his wealth and influence voluntarily? When we say voluntarily, I don't mean giving it to charity or whatever. I mean deciding to obey a law requiring him to do so. And B, at what point does his refusal to do so cause regrettable antagonism? And moreover, at what point 
do we admit that the conditions of the Amazon warehouses are genuinely antagonistic to, to us as a class? When we see the Tories sort of killing 120,000 people through, well, no Tories, Lib Dems and the labor right, killing 120,000 people through austerity, at what point do we see that as antagonism and by sort of mere, and by, with mere agonism, I say mere agonism, um, uh, are we sort of shooting ourselves in the foot? But you know, I, again, I, I can't pretend I know the answer to this question, but it is something that sort of was in the back of my mind while reading this whole thing. Because this is the problem and the fundamental contradiction of democratic socialism. At some way, at some point, sort of electorally driven democratic socialism requires the consent of the elites not to merely be diminished in their wealth and influence, but to stop being elites entirely. And I question whether or not this is possible. And therefore, we will be stuck in a rotation of improve and worsen as the elites sort of loosen and tighten their grip as we get sort of new deals and then welfare reform, as we get sort of um, uh, 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 Glass-Steagall and then Dodd-Frank and sort of rolls rolls back of protections. Uh, and, And rather than having their sort of metaphorical hands removed, not literal. And with liberal political ontology, an ontology, if, again, if you don't know, is the field that's concerned of understanding the nature of what things are, fails to understand this, this sort of this fact that politics is, is, is about irreducible interests. It is, it is conflict. It is adversarial. So I'm, I'm moving back from my criticism, but move back to sort of what she's saying, that it's not a process of problem solving, but one of contestation, which is why I also frequently point out that the liberal dream is to have a 100% vote share because they would have solved all the problems with all of the right facts, right? Um, and I'm sort of going to, I'm going to go a little bit out of the book for a second though. I'm going to go into something that's happened recently, which is sort of the people's march. Um, the People's Vote March. Now, for the puzzling segment of our listenership that's American, um, as we all know, Brexit, uh, the Brexit vote occurred, uh, and we now live in the world of Brexit and Trump, if liberal um, op-ed writers are to be believed. Um, and the re- response to Brexit has been sort of manifold. Uh, one of the responses has been sort of what we've taken to calling continuity remain. Continuity remain is the sort of... Um, the political project of the liberal Democrats, the labor right, uh, the conservative party, sort of various sort of cosmopolitan liberal elites and so on and so on, um, who uh, have got together and have said, no, we don't, we think that the Brexit vote was a bad idea. I mean, incidentally, I also do think it was a bad idea, but not in the same way they do. And so they're saying, okay, so what we need is a people's vote. We need another referendum. Now, this has been construed in sort of many different ways. Some have said, well, look, the people didn't have all, all the information when they voted, so we should actually do a second referendum to make sure we still care about it. I mean, incidentally, the opinion polls have swung, I think, in favor of Remain, but there's no guarantee Remain would win. It's hilarious. They just assume they would, um, which I'll get into, actually. Um, and uh, 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 the other the other thing they want is uh, a referendum on the terms of the deal. It's like, okay, well, we just said leave. We didn't say how we'd leave. So the idea is, well, let's get a vote uh, that is going to say on the ballot paper, uh, yes, we, we, we leave with no deal, or we take this deal, or we stay in uh, entirely. So you know, it's, I mean, the whole thing is a completely fraught uh, idea, but there we go. They're sort of march for it sort of more or less all the time. Um, 
But let's think about this. This is the liberal wing of both parties. They're trying to go backwards in time, essentially, to the point when they were relevant. That is where the cleavage in politics, because every political group has a cleavage, whether they acknowledge it or not. It's always based on an us-them division. Um, And for them, the division was between politicians, so politicians like Chakurumana and Anna Subri, who are basically liberals, who have sort of minor aesthetic disagreements over sort of how to be liberal, of how to manage capitalism, and so on and so on. Um, And the brutes who are sort of ruled, and it's for their sake that we rule, but it's also for their sake um, that we don't let them close to the handles of power, because they don't read The Economist, and they're going to fuck it up somehow. So this is... This is their cleavage. But that's also why liberals love to blame evil geniuses like Steve Bannon, Russia, Cambridge, Dark Ma- Cambridge Analytica, Dark Machiavelli or whatever for their ideology crumbling because it's, their whole ideology is based on getting 100% of the electorate, of being problem solvers, of working together to solve the problems of capitalism, of denying that there is such a thing as radical negativity, that there are irreducible differences and rather see the political divide as something to be overcome rather than this zone of contestation. And this is why I think I like about sort of what Mouffe sees politics as. She doesn't see it as an activity. She doesn't see it as something you do necessarily. Uh, She sees politics as an ontological space uh, where these divides occur and where you can sort of organize yourself into understanding, well, who am I? Who am I? What are my interests? Who else shares my interests? And we create these identities uh, that are political and that are based on an an us-them relationship. Um, and, 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 and they see politics as essentially a branch of economics. They see politics as a sort of kind of problem solving. Now, Marxists, of course, also kind of see politics as a branch of economics, but at least we acknowledge that there is, um, uh, that, that it's, it's contains within it, uh, irreducible differences, differences that are irreducible to compromise. Um, right. But they see themselves, yeah, as, as, as technicians more or less technocrats. So they need evil geniuses who are against good, who want this, who don't want good things for us as a, uh, let's say, society, for example, or just wrongness as their enemy. They've created their political divide, and on it is everyone sensible. And on the other side are either wrong people or evil people who lie, uh, or the fake news for example, or Russia. Uh, And on (laughs) this is why they're so fascinated with Steve Bannon. I mean, he's a guy who was in the White House for three months before getting turfed back to being, you know, a racist blogger. Um, But he serves as this other side. He is their political enemy because he reminds them, he he is proof that sort of, that they are the managers of facts. He is the purveyor of fiction. And then Everyone else is apolitical. They don't have a politics. Theirs is just to be ruled. Um, so you need that person on the other side whose viewpoints are illiberal and who is either mistaken or evil. So he's, he's, he's either lying or fucked up. This is why they always try to debate racism. Like, oh, we have to platform racists so we show them that their ideas are wrong, right? It's like it's sort of saying racism is stupid. Well, no. It's that racism is a way to draw the dividing line of politics between yourself and a racialized other, you know, that racism is not a mistake. 
Um, but when you see racism as the dividing line between friend and enemy, white and black, us and them, it doesn't matter that it's baseless and wrong and evil and horrible. It feels right to them because ultimately politics is libidinal. It's something we feel and it's something about what makes us who we are. This is why fact-checking doesn't work, because that only works on a single register, the sort of reason register, and it shies away from any kind of affective message. It's a sort of homo economicus assumption that aims to sort of avoid political excitement, because excitement isn't in the model. It's not, it's not controllable through, sort of, through regulation. It's not easily capitalizable. You can add up the effects, but you can add up the facts, but you can't add up the affects. So think about how continuity remain could be doing better if they spoke to people's feelings about being a European and having a post-national identity. Think if they, if instead of sort of, you know, sort of trotting out statistic after statistic after statistic and sort of fact-checking leaves, sort of endlessly saying, oh, they wrote down a lie on the side of a bus. Um, and what they could have done was they could have, they could have actually harnessed something that people felt and that we wanted to go after. They could have said, don't, don't, don't you think of the life you could be losing, not just the life you could be losing, but imagine this, what this project could be, the idea that we could actually get past states, get past wars, and we could sort of come together in solidarity. Now, also, obviously, the European Union isn't that. It's a, you know, a giant regulatory capitalist club that, you know, to keep countries from turning too socialist. Uh, But let's forget that for now. The Leave campaign did speak to people's emotions because it didn't matter that 350 million a week wasn't going to the NHS. The idea was you're, they were at, that was a way for them to say, you're getting screwed and we're going to screw them back for you. We never did that. And we never do because ultimately liberals, the liberals like libidinal drive is for West wing fact checkery. Now, this is why Muth discusses Gramsci and Freud here, and I think this is what works really, really well, is sort of, of talking about these dual systems. Sort of, yes, there is economics, but there's also culture, and things don't merely proceed along these sort of simple reductionist lines where people sort of line up all the facts in their heads and then sort of, based on where the facts are, sort of define themselves accordingly. Um, so culture, think law and order, does much more to create our political identity by imagining what the police do than facts, because it creates it creates the facts that we act on when we act politically, and the facts themselves are immaterial, because the, the facts are only the facts in as much as they are understood to be true, and in as much as they are acted upon. I'm sorry, Michael Walker. <laughs> I'm, I'm being a postmodernist again, rather than a scientific socialist. But I think that's in terms of, say, electoralism anyway, that matters. It really matters that when people think of the police, they think of law and order. They don't think about the effects of the carceral state on, you know, them and their friends and people who could be their friends and, you know, their other and everyone in society. They don't, they, they may feel even a persistent sort of little bit of like a, a quickening heartbeat when they see a police officer across the street, even if they're doing nothing wrong, because they know they know somewhere that they're scared of the carceral state, and that's what it represents to them. Um, but what this cre- but but with the law and order vision, the sort of again creating this hegemonic idea of what the of what police are, you know, then we're able to, to set then and arguments for say curtailing police power or in the states for sort of disarming police get sort of beaten down because the first thing people think of is you know the the, the SVU sting and the people protecting them from you know the rapists and murderers and so on and so forth. So political knowledge has this effective dimension because knowledge doesn't necessarily have to be true. You just have to believe it to be true. But socialist strategy must capitalize on this. Like, why do you think we do a comedy show? It's because 
ultimately that's what people like. It makes it sort of fun and it talks to people's you know feelings. It makes people identify with what we're talking about rather than just sort of understand it as more statistics and facts in a world of statistics and facts that don't excite you that at best just kind of make you feel sort of tired and guilty. Um, and so really the implicit political divide that makes liberals a political unit um, is this conceptual one that their enemy is errors of fact, lies and effective politics. So when liberal austerity measures claim 120,000 lives, it's not murder because it was inevitable to call it murder, to engage with this fact antagonistically or even just agonistically is incoherent to the liberal mind because it draws a dividing line between opposed groups of individuals and liberals believe division between people undermines the quest for facts. So every gotcha continuity remain picks up about the Brexit vote, the overspend, the rush manipulation, whatever is implicitly based on imagining the division between truth and fiction to be a political one rather than a factual one that has a contested political meaning. And this is also why liberals love to say, judge us on our record, meaning stop articulating political demands based on your interest and instead do politics as a calculus of facts. Fascists don't talk down to the electorate because ultimately fascists represent, or at least they don't talk down to the right electorate, the white electorate, the national electorate, because fascists represent a real political tendency. Liberals talk down to the electorate because the electorate has forsaken facts. That's why sort of the every day on sort of on, on, on online or even in person in the press, whatever, you'll hear endlessly the, ah, well, the voters were wrong. They didn't have all the facts. They were tricked. They were lied to. There was fake news. Russians created, you know, Facebook groups about how you know, Hillary Clinton was actually a lizard or all this stuff, right? Well, that's people believe that because it's true to them. And then liberals say, well, it's not actually true. And their response is just, well, of course you'd say that because you're one of the lizard people. Why would you say what's true? I get my 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 news. I know the truth. David Vance told me. Um, and 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 you're sort of part of the part of the problem. And the sort of the endless apple polishing nerdery, the just dorkishness is like, nah, actually, I think you'll find if you look at the facts uh, that uh, Hillary Clinton is not a lizard. In fact, we even got a DNA test to prove Hillary Clinton is not a lizard. It's like, well, what's that matter? Like, honestly, what's how is that going to be? Ah, I was wrong. I thought Hillary Clinton was a lizard. Turns out she wasn't. Crazy. So this is what socialists sort of have to understand. And I think what we increasingly do understand. So when we think about say, the, the, the style of Jeremy Corbyn, um, what he talks about is, is you. He sort of identifies that there are elites, they are fucking you over, and you have power. He is empowering to you know, listen to, because, simply because he says, you know, rise like lions. He is saying, you should get swept away. You should get swept away in this sort of mission for justice. Um, and I think, and I think that's sort of very effective. He's not saying, well, no, you voted wrong. He's understanding that you have interests and that those interests are opposed to someone else and that we have to get the voters on side and we can't get them on side while sort of, you know, just bombarding them with a bunch of facts from homework class. So I, I think that's, that's very, it's hopeful to see, I guess. I, I just hope it's enough to, you know, turn back the tide of fascism before, you know, global warming kills us all, you know, what, in two months before Christmas. So anyway, what does MOOF say we have to do to fix our predicament? I mean, from that sort of little theoretical and sort of liberal politics digression, I think we can see that 
I think we already have some of what Moof says, which is that politics has to sort of re-harness the libidinal and has to sort of exist as real politics and not as sort of post-politics where there is no division between friend and enemy and politics is merely managerialism of capitalism. We throw up our hands and say, well, the market's just going to handle it. And, you know, we're going to basically be glorified ribbon cutters. It's like, well, no, we have to go be political again and be actually political because the fascists have been political for a while. I mean, I think that's actually one of the, one of the sort of strong points of, of her sort of quoting, um, Schmidt and directly or indirectly alluding to someone like Heidegger, because you're saying, well, look, we know that they are effective. They're tapping into something and, and they're tapping into something powerful and we can tap into that same thing, but harness it basically for good. So to fix our predicament, Move says we have to radicalize democracy. That is to say, we must reclaim liberal democracy from its conflation with the capitalist mode of production. Uh, it is within this framework, she writes, of the constitutive principles of the liberal state, the division of power, universal suffrage, multi-party systems, and civil rights, that it is possible to advance the full range of present-day democratic demands. To struggle against post-democracy does not consist in discarding these principles, but in defending and radicalizing them. So we radicalize democracy, we move these concepts out of a merely formal dimension, and aim to extend more of them into more of society. The capitalist order creates a boss class and almost feudal relationship to the worker, which means that sort of the principles of equality before the law, for example, the, 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 the principles of civil rights, of you know, being able to say what you want, for example, um, may, or it may be enjoyed outside of work, but what about in work? And what about as the boss gets more of sight of you outside of work? Um, we do not enjoy those same rights. And so radicalizing democracy means asking how we can extend those rights, say, of free speech to mean that, yes, the government won't punish you for what you say. Um, not necessarily. I mean, obviously, hate speech, et cetera, et cetera. But let's say expressing a left political opinion. That gets a lot of people fired. Or aiming to organize a union. That gets a lot of people fired. So radicalizing democracy means understanding that sort of free speech must be more than formally guaranteed. It must be like guaranteed into the workplace. And that means curtailing the rights of the boss sort of quite significantly. Because that's what political rights did. Political rights curtailed the sort of the right, the, the privileges enjoyed by the sort of the nobles of um, – of, of, of sort of, of, of the 18th and 19th centuries and medieval times and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, blah, blah, Hegelianism. Um, and, and if we can extend, we understand that the next logical step with these rights isn't that they're done. You know, it's post-politics says that those rights are extended and we have them. Good. We're done. Let's, um, let's, you know, let, let's, let's tweet about our favorite Harry Potter books so that the so that Bay prime minister, Justin Trudeau will notice us. Nah. No, no, no. We have to push those rights into more and more of our of our of our of our of our lives, um, and that makes sense to me because those rights already exist. People already have a basis with them. They already identify them with them. And so, if we make the case, say this is what uh, if we make the case for socialism, not as a oh well, it's more efficient actually, uh, and not by sort of quoting Marx endlessly. And if we make the case for like curtailing the boss's power um, because we're trying to actually give you more freedom. We got, we're trying to like extend the freedom you enjoy in the political sphere into the economic sphere. God damn, that's a powerful message. Why do you like remember like that's why remember like um, Jeremy Corbyn's video last year when he said, you know, the, um, 
the, the bankers at JP Morgan have said, we are a threat. They're right. We are a threat to them. That is what, because what he's saying is we are a threat to them for you. That the bankers at JP Morgan, they're sort of the reason that you can't pay your rent. It's their interests that are sort of cutting, that are sort of cutting benefits and creating universal credit. It's so we can create the kind of economy where they thrive at your expense. Well, we are a threat to them for you because we are instant, we, we are interested in liberty and we're interested in extending democracy. Um, and so let's think about the difference between a left populist group and a liberal group. People's Vote looks at politics as something that happens sporadically among elites to solve problems. But those elites, the best thing we can do is petition them to sort of solve the problem in a way we want, which is why people like Brian Cox and Jolly and Mom and whatever are sort of so aghast that sort of Brexit hasn't just been canceled yet. Why, you know, whenever Jeremy Corbyn goes to take a shit, they're like, ah, taking a shit, Jeremy, but why aren't you talking about Brexit? That's the problem. That's the one we want you to solve. Whereas Momentum, a left populist group, now look, I know I sort of said, I, 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 I talk up sort of Corbyn and Momentum sort of quite a bit on these, and I think genuinely, currently, they are right now are probably our best chance to get sort of anything resembling socialism in our time, sort of their imperfections notwithstanding. I'm thinking of them more sort of stylistically, so I know there are criticisms of both. But Momentum is a left populist group, and it's looking at ways of building consensus and sort of building power outside elite circles, where pressing for a left populist hegemony in parliament through electoral means is merely one of many strategies. So at the World Transformed, there are sort of panels on voting and, and organizing people to sort of, you know, campaign. There are also panels, say, on reforming the structure of the media and sort of changing the content of the media, making our own content to sort of push out those Gramsci and hegemonic truths. So it, you, for example, of a sort of a hegemonic truth is, um, the, is the sort of the sensibility of austerity. Then Momentum makes a video about how um, uh, – uh, Oh, actually what happens, the government cuts weight, cuts the budget, and then the school budget is cut, so the teachers can't be paid more, so they can't go to the restaurants, so that the restaurants can't hire builders, and then everyone pays less in tax, and then the budget has to be cut more, and it's just a spiral of cuts. They have reef that, that stuff like that, as opposed to just sort of statistics, but and almost entertainment media is what is going to sort of create these new beliefs among people. Uh, right? And so left populism sees politics as something more or less all of us do more or less all of the time. And that's why people's vote, on the other hand, the liberal group, can never think of doing anything except marching. You know, even their their attempt to try to make a momentum style video like this that sort of grabs people's imaginations and sort of changes their ideas of, well, what society is and what it's for was basically one where – they were sort of doing the metaphor of Brexit as a something bad happening to you that you have to speak up and speak out against. They don't say why it's bad. They don't, they just, they're talking to people who already agree with them to say, hey, remember this bad thing? Isn't it bad? And it's like, yeah, fine. But you're not creating any new fact. You're not sort of building a Gramscian hegemony. You're not building out the truth. You're not, you're not contesting anything. You're just sort of complaining. Which is why ultimately liberal political movements tend to be more or less different versions of let me speak to your manager. I mean, what is the people's vote march but a mass demand to speak to the manager? And it, and, and Alistair Campbell's sort of view of, 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 of the people's vote march is the most sort of significant march in British politics in the last sort of, you know, 20 years, sort of downplaying the protest against the Iraq war that sort of actually, I think, by by voicing – 
by the, which was a, again, I think a genuine populist protest voicing a sort of an opposition that unfortunately didn't work at the time, but I think did, you know, create a kind of, um, a kind of, of uh, anti-intervention mood in British politics. It sort of helped spur, I think the, some of the, some of the tendencies that kept us out of Syria, for example. Good. Um, I mean, and, 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 because that was that was a populist movement. It wasn't merely complaining. It was outrage. The student protests that was they 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 was very that that got quite radical quite quickly. And I think it a bunch of sort of a bunch of people sort of came together. A bunch of students came together in this idea that austerity is screwing them over. But what is what do the what does this people's vote protest really have? What unites these people? What is there? What burns for them? Nothing, because they think politics ought to be boring. They think it ought to be just problem solving. They want to go back in time to when things were normal, which is why it's sort of so shambolic. Um, and I think that's that's sort of one one of one of the one of the ways I see these things as opposed. Uh, but sort of back to Moof, um, she thinks that the way we institute this is a sort of radical reform at all levels of society. So specifically not revolution. Um, you know, so part of this is, so there's this difference between what groups like, you know, momentum and, and people's vote are doing, right? Momentum is doing, or at least starting to do something that looks like radical reform, sort of building out alternative institutions and facts while pushing in sort of a, a, a leftist hegemony through parliament. Fine. Good. Um, but I'm kind of worried I'm going to bum us all out again because like, I wonder if there is an inherent contradiction, you know, between de- durable democratization and mere if radical reformism. I mean, elites are an inherently revanchist class, and as a class are enormously patient. The Gilded Age of the 1920s gave way to the radically reformist New Deal of the sort of the middle of the 20th century. And of course, the New Deal was not without its own problems. It was like designed to keep black people out of uh, out of any of its any of its benefits. Um, but then, when because the elites retained power even if diminished power, though reduced, they were able to use that power to accrue increasing returns and were poised to take advantage of the next crisis of capitalism when it occurred in the 1970s, which was high inflation paired with low growth tied to skyrocketing skyrocketing energy costs to remold society in their image, right? So that, that any gain we make, as long as there are elites, is going to be by its very nature temporary. So we go back to that thing I was talking about at the beginning. What is the distinction between agonism and antagonism practically? When does agonism become antagonism and when is antagonism justified? How can we face conservative or Republican governments with mere agonism when they are antagonistic to sections of us at a time? Universal credit is state-sanctioned murder by omission. Friendliness is as distinct from agonism as agonism is distinct from antagonism. But at, at, at some point, right, like, you know, we're sort of being killed and marginalized slowly by people who aren't going to give up power. I mean, look, at the end of the day, I'm not, as I'm I'm sure many of the sort of tanky critics of the trash future know, I'm not a Stalinist. I'm not even a Leninist. I'm a sort of, I'm I'm at base a democratic socialist. I genuinely do believe that this is possible, but I just, I have my own doubts about my own thinking. And I worry that kind of it is rigged against us, you know. But you know, call me a pessimistic optimist, because that's where all these contradictions lead: is to fun little uh, invented phrases that we make up. <sighs> 
Anyway, that's why they all love technology too. That's why Matt Hancock keeps talking about apps or Sam Jima keeps being like, ah, oh, Deliveroo is so great. It's because, you know, liberals look at technology as being like, ah, oh, yes, by improving this or that process that we're doing, you can remove the inefficiencies from it. We can create sort of new media of exchange and then we can reduce the irreducible complexity by merely sort of problem solving, by, 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 by overcoming the political divide as a problem. You know, we can, um, we can make uh, an app for the NHS that means we won't have to fund it adequately because funding it adequately, you know, means, say, increasing the tax base, which ultimately is going to make one group worse off um, to make everyone else better off. Like, there's no getting around that. We are going to have to make some people worse off. It's just the people we're making worse off are, you know, the richest people in the history of all of humanity. And the people we're making better off is everybody else. <laughs> Um, but if we used, if we say, well, the, we have a technological solution, we can be like, okay, great. We don't have to tax anybody. We can allow sort of the market to keep working. And we can keep imagining that we are not political. So like we talk, we ask like, yeah, hey, well, what's the relationship between technology and capitalism is that technology is kind of a, a, a game of three card Monty where we can say, well, no, there is no divide. There's just a, a problem waiting to be solved. You know, Houston, we have a problemity. But, you know, that's, um, I mean, uh, hey, it's the whole basis for our show. Uh, um, anyway, so yeah, that's for a left populism. Uh, and I think it's a very worthwhile read. I think it actually sets out some ways that we can look at solving some of the problems that I talk about in all of the other uh, commie book clubs. Anyway, on to the rest of it. Uh, so if you're listening to this, uh, you are a Patreon subscriber, although I think I might unlock it uh, next week because I do kind of want people to hear it. I'm going to keep it for the Patreon early access. Um, so thank you. Uh, if you haven't subscribed to the Patreon, do. Uh, you can hear more of our fun talk for a very small amount of money. Uh, and it's very good. Maybe. Is it very good? I don't know. At Alex Keeley. Tell him. Um other news. So we're doing a live show on Tuesday, the 30th of October at the Seckford. Come see us. We'll try not to bum you out. Uh, we might not succeed, but hey, who knows? Um, it should be very fun. Uh, tickets are uh, available on Eventbrite and you should get them. Uh, if you want to commodify your descent with a t-shirt from Lil Comrade, you can. Uh, you can do that. You can get uh, your favorite quote from Fur Left Populism uh, put onto a T-shirt with our logo on the back. It's a great way to cover your top half so you don't get arrested for walking around naked in public or you don't get like grease on you while you're cooking. Very, very effective. And at the same time, you'll be supporting like one of the only good kinds of business there is, a worker-owned one. Um, uh, finally, our theme music is uh, called Here We Go. And it's available on Spotify by Ginseng. I know I say this a lot, but I, I think it's a very good tune. And you should listen to it early and often. Uh, and that's it from me. So have a lovely, lovely evening. I hope that um, by the time you get to work, because most people, I think, listen to this on their commutes, um, that your job doesn't suck too much and that you can find some ways to take back a little bit of liberty from your boss. But yes, that's all from me. I will talk to you all later, and I hope to see some of you on the 30th. Good night, everybody.